1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Catriona Gold, and I'm a PhD candidate at University College London. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Rizwan Sabir about his brand new book, The Suspect, Counterterrorism, Islam and the Security State, which came out in March 2022 with Pluto Press. Rizwan is an assistant professor in criminology at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK, and his research focuses on counter-terrorism and armed Muslim groups. In 2008, he was wrongly arrested and detained under terrorism charges for downloading the so-called Al-Qaeda training manual as part of his academic research. This book places that arrest and its traumatic consequences in the context of broader UK counter-terrorism policing practices. It's a powerful and important work which I'm excited to discuss with him. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Rizwan. Uh
0: Thank you very much, Kat, for having me.
1: Right, um, glad you're here. So I'd like to start by asking you to tell me a little bit, uh, not everything, we don't want to give it all away, uh, about the events discussed in this book, just to give our listeners a sense of your experience and motivation for writing the book.
0: Uh, yeah, that's a really good question to start with. So the the, the book is motivated by my lived experiences of being uh, arrested in May of 2008 under the Terrorism Act for being in possession of a document I downloaded from an American government website, the US Department of Justice, uh, nicknamed the Al Qaeda training manual. The actual real manual's title is Military Studies in the Jihad Against the Tyrants. That was the title given to it by its creators in the 1980s but the actual title of al-qaeda training manual was given to it by the u.s department of justice in 2001 when the uh, east africa embassy bombing suspects were brought to uh, the united states new york and were prosecuted for those acts of violence that's when that document was submitted As evidence and part of the US legal process is to make public all submitted evidence which included the Al-Qaeda training manual. That actual Al-Qaeda training manual um, can be purchased from high street bookshops and it can also be loaned from the library. I'd actually downloaded it for free, a redacted version because it had key chapters missing from the US Department of Justice website. When this actual document was discovered on the computer, of my co-accused, an Algerian Muslim man who was working as the principal administrator in the Modern Languages Department at the University of Nottingham. Um, That particular document was reported to uh, counter-terrorism police, who then arrived on campus and executed Operation Minerva, in which both he and I were taken into custody and held for a total period of seven days and six nights in solitary confinement while our lives were turned inside out and upside down, in order to determine whether we were actually terrorists using this for nefarious purpose, or whether we were just students going about our academic research.
1: Right. And um, perhaps uh, you could tell me um, a little bit more about how those, I mean, how those events unfolded at the kind of university level, like what, happened at the university to make your arrest, which seems completely disproportionate, you know, in hindsight. Um, How did your arrest come about?
0: Yeah, so when the document was found on Hisham Yeza, my co-accused computer, uh, it was escalated to the university's management. Now, in any public sector institution like a university, one would expect um, a certain due diligence to take place before Uh, such material or literature is reported to the authorities. Um, for example, you could have consulted the university's terrorism and insurgency expert to provide some kind of counsel on what the nature of this document was. And had that happened, it would have emerged within a matter of you know 60 seconds after a brief Google search that this document is actually a publicly available high street library document that's been used by thousands of researchers across the world for their legitimate academic scholarship and research. None of those checks and balances or due diligence were conducted by the university. Instead, the matter was escalated to the internal security department, whose head, uh, an ex-special branch uh, police officer, actually uh, reported the matter to his ex-colleagues rather than ringing the police at a normal level and reporting the, uh, the discovery, who would have then carried out their due diligence and escalated it up the the chain of command none of that happened so we can see immediately that processes in order to investigate the discovery of this document before the police were called were completely sidelined no risk assessment or analysis was done by the university to determine and ascertain the nature of the document something which i had confirmed in writing with the help of my member of parliament because the university would not um so to speak be transparent about that particular issue, so all of these processes that were established out of a commitment of duty of care to um, students and staff members were completely sidelined because of the the, the kind of moral panic that was driving. British counter-terrorism and civil society institutions at that particular juncture in history, right? It's 2008. We've just had the 7-7 London bombings three years earlier. There are uh, other plots taking place. So I think we have to place it in the context of that broader moral panic at the time and how that leads to All of these processes and safeguards being completely sidelined and the police rushing onto campus with 26 police officers in what became codenamed Minerva in order to arrest uh, my co-accused Hisham Yeza and myself under the Terrorism Act.
1: Right. And that, I mean, that arrest was found to be wrongful because you, you did bring a court case, right? Could you tell us a bit about that,
0: perhaps? Yeah, sure. Um, so the the court case was actually proceeding, civil claim was, uh, proceedings were brought in 2008, um, about four months, five months after my arrest and release without charge, because, of course, I was released without charge, I should emphasise. Um, and, and part of that court case, the, the the kind of driving or motivating factor was to make sure that my name, which I knew at that moment was going to be kind of tarred with this brush of you know, suspicion and doubt, as I'll explain to you shortly. Um, but I had to clear my name in a very public way and make sure that the police recognise that they cannot just go about arresting postgraduate students, conducting academic research on armed Muslim groups and government policy and get away with it. So it was that kind of inherent innate desire uh, and need to not only clear my name, but also to hold the ch- uh, the state uh, to account for its excesses and draconian laws and practices that authorize them and legitimize and justify them legally to go into universities and arrest ordinary people because they are either Muslim or, or engaged in political activism or dissidents. That's unacceptable, and the legal case was a part and part of of that process of accountability essentially and in 2011 it actually uh, concluded in my favour after the police uh, agreed to settle the case and pay me damages as well as all of my legal fees as well as uh, to correct a series of intelligence files and surveillance data that they were holding on their systems uh, which was essentially classifying me as somebody who was a terrorist somebody who had a conviction of course completely falsely and and, and, and inaccurately. Um, And and that's what the outcome of that was. So for me personally at that time, it was a monumental personal kind of vindication and allowed me uh, to then try and move on uh, with my life and and kind of leave this behind. But actually I soon realized that that was not going to happen because of the kind of mental health issues I started uh, experiencing after the kind of dust settled on the legal case and led to a whole series of kind of traumatizing outcomes and problems for me.
1: Right. Yeah. That's yeah, that's something we can move on to. And it and it was it was sort of not just the trauma of that initial arrest and detention right but but also subsequent harassment you experienced by police or you know checks at airports it seems like it seems like clear that your your name wasn't really cleared in some ways right it it, you still remained on a-list, maybe multiple lists, um, could you maybe sum up some of those experiences you had subsequent and, and kind of the, t- the kind of time period over which those were happening?
0: Yeah, that's actually a really excellent question, because I think most, most people um, uh, will understand that if you are arrested and then released without charge, that the state believes you to be innocent and therefore allows to just get on with your life. As an ordinary person, that's actually naively what I used to think at that moment in time as well. That I would just, yeah, my name would be on certain databases, but I would allow to be uh, able to just get on with my life as a normal student, postgraduate student at that time doing a PhD and then an academic. But actually, I very quickly uh, discovered and learned that that was not going to happen. And what I was essentially being subjected to was repeated stops and search whilst I was driving uh, because a certain uh, set of laws apply to the drivers of a motor vehicle in the UK um, as opposed to a passenger or an ordinary member who's walking in the street, right? So it's a a slightly stricter uh, set of laws that apply. So being the driver of a motor vehicle makes you essentially more vulnerable to being targeted by the state and having to kind of divulge certain pieces of information um, when you're uh, questioned. Also, at the same time, whenever I would travel, I would be detained um, at the border, either at the point of entry or exit of the United Kingdom and be questioned for considerable periods of time. Now, for example, um, one of those stops that happened on my return from Spain to the United Kingdom was actually in 2010, and it was an intelligence-led stop. What that essentially means is that the police were waiting for me on arrival to the United Kingdom, uh, as opposed to just profiling me and randomly stopping me for questioning. They knew that I would be returning, and they were waiting. And when they eventually did take me into a detention room, they interrogated me for two hours and seized my, my smartphone at the time, my digital camera. And carried out questioning around all sorts of things what my charity and giving habits were, what my research was on, why I was researching Al Qaeda, um, whether terrorists had human rights, as they famously asked me, Um, all these questions. The same with going to the United States of America in 2015. I was actually stopped twice at the airport in the UK before boarding the uh, Delta Airlines aircraft and then, excuse me, detained on arrival at JFK in order to catch my connection to Washington, D.C. So you can see that the level of scrutiny and suspicion that was following me at that time, and all of this was driven by a specific flag uh, that was um, placed next to my name called Subject of Interest uh, for previous terrorism-related offences. Now, every person who was arrested under the UK terrorism laws is placed on a database and that flag is added to their name. So whenever they travel or whenever they kind of uh, apply for a job in a sensitive post, <clears throat> that particular flag will flag up particular information. Um, so this flag was then causing me to be constantly um, detained and questioned and accounted, having to account for my actions at the roadside and the border. But also at the same time, as I kind of busied myself with, researching government policy i uh, eventually i discovered through disclosures made to me um, that there was email traffic there was uh, records being kept by government agencies about the sorts of information i was requesting under the freedom of information act um, the types of events i was involved in what my research research was about op-eds that i was writing in uh, media and blog um, kind of uh, spaces all of these were being logged so even though I was innocent in some, um, the suspicion, the 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 doubt, the skepticism that somehow I was not actually innocent but was engaged in something troubling and problematic and worthy of further investigation and analysis was very much present throughout the entire time um, after my release up until I would say to two thousand and well, to present, because it expresses itself differently. Um, So that shadow of suspicion followed me for a number of years.
1: And this is despite, you know, you not only um, never having been charged uh, with anything, but having won this case for, you know, having been wrongly arrested um, against the police. And so that's, yeah, it seems it seems absurd um, that you would still be on a number of lists, um, but that's yeah, that's the that's kind of how it how it works here. And I think we can we can pivot to that now. I mean, you started talking about this broader context um, of counterterrorism policing in the UK, but maybe you could just in, in, introduce the the concept. You know, what is what is counterterrorism policing, and and how did it sort of arise or, or not arise, but develop um, in the 2000s? And I think uh, maybe this term counterinsurgency might also be useful to, to talk about.
0: Uh, yeah, that's an excellent question. So counterterrorism policing, which is essentially what I was um, kind of uh, the direct victim of because I was arrested and subjected to violence, of course, draws inspiration from a broader field of counterinsurgency. Now, for those listeners who may not know what counterinsurgency is, counterinsurgency is essentially a military doctrine that holds the idea that not only are individuals engaging in violence a problem or a threat that need to be neutralized, whether through uh, overt acts of state violence like uh, arrest, detention, drone strikes, targeted assassination, and so forth. But actually that insurgent, that individual, relies upon a broader community or subgroup in order to find sanctuary and safety, and also to find momentum for their ideological worldview. Thus, rather than just targeting the so-called violent individual, you also have to police and monitor the broader pool within which that violent individual operates and relies upon for their existence. So the inspiration to include that particular discourse in order to explain counterterrorism and my, and my, my own arrest was driven by this need to kind of place this, you know, this arrest of an individual at a university in the United Kingdom Uh, into its broader global context, because, of course, the arrest takes place in the broader context of the war on terror, which is actually a war of counterinsurgency. And that is to say, uh, not only are violent individuals targeted, but actually nonviolent individuals and communities who may provide or may have similar grievances to the violent individuals need to also be targeted through a combination of persuasive and manipulative actions as well as psychological influence and messaging campaigns. So the way, the reason to include counterinsurgencies uh, counterinsurgency was to say, look, you can't just look at this case in isolation. In order to understand the context within which the possession of literature, for example, becomes criminalized and viewed with suspicion is if we understand that actually one of the main drivers for this policy area is the belief the ideology is driving violence, and thus anybody who either holds or wants to even understand the ideology of our Muslim groups and kind of challenges that taboo that exists to understand these groups becomes a target and a suspect within themselves. But we can only understand that is if we look at counterinsurgency. That was one of the main reasons, but there is also another reason. And the second one is that counterinsurgency has a number of key principles that drive this particular form of warfare. For example, all the violence that is undertaken by the state must be undertaken in accordance with carefully drafted legislation and law. It's the rule of law and violence that's undertaken through the law that counterinsurgents promote because it leads to the generation of consent, the development of acceptance, so every form of violence, bar a few, are enshrined and based upon carefully drafted pieces of legislation. And everything that the UK does, especially in the, uh, in the domestic context, and the US does in the domestic context, or even international to some extent, is based upon law. So in order to understand how lawfare becomes used or is used by states in order to exercise violence, we can only do that if we understand how it's used in this form of warfare. Also, secondly, and most importantly, counterinsurgents say that in order to undertake any form of action, whether it's coercive or persuasive, you have to collect information and intelligence. And that comes from agencies like the CIA and MI5 and MI6, what we could call um, covert uh, intelligence or signals intelligence, listening to people's phone calls and emails, social media data, that kind of thing, and also at the same time, anthropological data, social scientific information collected by academics and military anthropologists in order to develop policy that will either be informing the use of violence or the use of communicative uh, propaganda strategies, and that is enshrined within counterinsurgency doctrine. So I thought in order to actually understand and explain what's happening in terms of uh, lawful violence, surveillance, um, policies like the countering violent extremism prevent policy, which seeks to influence people's ideas and minds in order to ideologically um, indoctrinate or program them, can only be understood as if we understand this historical form of warfare that has always been used against racialized minorities in the global south, whether it's in Vietnam, whether it is in India, whether it is in Egypt, Oman, Cyprus, South Africa, um, Malaysia, and other parts of the world where empire had some kind of control or leverage over the population. So that's the reason why I kind of integrated this discussion of counterinsurgency.
1: Right, yeah, the the kind of connections between the the sort of global context and uh, yeah, or imperial context, and, and the UK context of domestic policing seem quite clear from from your discussion. Um, I, I wonder, uh, yeah, if you could talk a bit about, I mean, because you, you mentioned that your, your research focus changed um, from, you know, your arrest and detention, um, at least in part, sparked a kind of re- reorientation in your, in your research um, on these issues. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about um, what the topic of your master's was when, when you were arrested and also, you know, where you went on from there, you know, your PhD, your subsequent research?
0: Uh, yeah, so when I was actually arrested, even before then, when I was doing my my master's in international relations, uh, my research focus was always driven by this desire to understand what was motivating our Muslim groups like al-Qaeda. So you know, I've kind of grown up as part and parcel of that 9 eleven generation when that was the kind of um, the kind of uh, watershed, political, violent act that informed and drove so much uh, state violence undertaken under the command of the US. So I became curious and interested, why why was Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda flying planes uh, into buildings and blowing up tubes and trains in Spain, for example, and bombing hotels and nightclubs in Bali? So I wanted to understand what was driving them. So part and parcel of my research at that time was structured in a way to understand the motivations in order to explain them. And the whole desire was driven by this need to create policy that was more progressive and would lead to resolution, conflict resolution, right? So we understand in order to explain, in order to create policy that will actually address the drivers of insecurity. And then during the course of that uh, attempted research uh, I was arrested and detained and accused of being a member of Al Qaeda myself, as if I was planning an act of terrorism, and that completely sent my uh, sent my mind into this confused frenzy. That I thought there were, as a naive twenty two year old at the time, I thought there were clear boundaries between you know people who were the good guys and people who were the bad guys, and mostly they are our guys. Um, so I, I I I couldn't fathom how that was happening. So when i was released without charge i became a lot more curious to know what it is that the state what allowed the state rather to kind of execute this form of violence against ordinary people who were trying to understand and explain armed political violence so as a result i was no longer interested in looking at the the small person, but I actually wanted to look at how power was institutionalised and embedded and how it constructed certain communities as threatening and dangerous, and through the use of law, allowed violence to be exercised against them without any public outcry or criticism. So I decided to start looking at power and how power was institutionalised and embedded within all institutions within civil and political society as well as the police and security agencies, in order to understand what was motivating these particular agencies to use violence and against people who were actually trying to create progressive and forward-thinking policies. So as a result, my entire focus had to be reorientated towards counterterrorism rather than terrorism. So state violence rather than non-state violence.
1: Right. And you'd had this very personal experience of the stakes, which um, should also be mentioned that, you know, as, as you do make clear in your book, you're in some ways, you were in some ways, exceptionally lucky or privileged in terms of the fact that you did manage to dispute your arrest, the fact that you weren't charged, you had excellent legal support pro bono, because I think you mentioned that you weren't eligible for legal aid. Is that correct? Uh Yeah,
0: Yeah. okay. So um, in in terms of legal aid, before I forget that point, um, no, I was entitled to legal aid whilst I was in detention. um, Uh, But I was not entitled to legal aid when I was uh, bringing a civil claim against the police for wrongful arrest and detention.
1: Right. Okay, sorry. But just,
0: no, 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 that's fine. I'm glad you asked it for a clarification point. Uh, Just on the broader point about the case being an exception to the rule, actually, this is a really, really key point that you've, Uh, mentioned, and it is something that I do mention in the book as well, that my story is not an exception. It's actually the rule. The only thing exceptional about it is that I'm telling it in such a formal way. And I'm only telling it in such a formal way because I have the privilege and the benefit of having an education. Yes, that education was challenged and may never have existed once I was taken into custody now I may have found myself being prosecuted and convicted. But actually, I'm still in a very privileged place, despite the difficulties and and kind of hurdles I faced, because I had the support of academics. I had the support of journalists who were outraged at the way that the police had behaved. I had the tools myself through my education to be able to express and articulate what I went through, why I went through it and the effects of both of those things. And not everybody has that. And this is why and this is how the state and its agencies of coercion and control oftentimes get away with the exercise of violence that they pick on. They target the most vulnerable segments of our communities who are not able to draw or create connections with journalists and bloggers and lawyers and others in order to articulate and express themselves. So yes, whilst it is unique that I am writing about this particular topic in a formalized way, in the form of a book, it's not an exception. The only thing that is exceptional is that I'm telling the story the actual experiences that I'm describing, the after effects, the surveillance, the feeling of being gaslighted and, and coerced um, and, and kind of being disciplined all the time. These are very ordinary experiences that people who survive state violence, and there's been 2,418, including myself, from 9-11 until March 2021, who have been arrested and released without charge for terrorism. All of those people, will be going through similar emotions. But the question is, they're not able to tell their stories. I am. That's what makes the case unique.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, yeah, what what I mean by exceptional is, is, yeah, not just the fact that you're able to tell the story as well, but the fact that you were able to respond and that you had the support in that moment to do that. Because, of course, the outcome has been different for lots of other people kind of charged with, or who, who were charged, rather you weren't charged, but who who did end up being charged or spending time in prison, right, For for um, offences which you know, m- yeah, may or may not have warranted that under this kind of very broad net. And so, I think I wouldn't want people to to read this or listen to this and come away thinking, "Oh well, you know, it's okay, justice prevails." You know, in in this case, because actually, I think that that's one of the things that it, that is exceptional about this case is that you were able to fight it so effectively. Actually, just
0: on that particular point, a particular memory uh, based on a conversation I had with my lawyer, when I told him that I was writing this book, he actually said to me, he goes, make sure you discuss legal aid. So in the UK, if you are arrested by the police for any crime, you're entitled to legal representation at no cost to you, at the cost of the taxpayer. Now, the trouble is that the Conservative government, especially since 2010, has massively slashed Access to legal aid. Now, what that means is that the lawyers who are turning up to the police station to do legal aid pro bono uh, representative work are not those people who are experienced. It's usually younger lawyers who are trying to get some experience under their belt. And the only way that they can do that is if they do legal aid work. Now, why that is important is because the type of representation and advice that you get in a police station will determine the likelihood or probability of whether you are going to be charged or not, because the lawyer, for example, who is inexperienced, might advise you or counsel you to speak when it's actually not in your best interest. So the way that the structural cuts and austerity measures have been applied to the criminal justice system is actually harming people much more now than was the case when I was in custody. So even though I had access to legal aid, the legal environment has changed so negatively since that time that even though you are entitled to legal support, people are not going to be getting the sort of support that they probably need the sort of expertise that the lawyer needs to possess in order to deal with this very specialist area of law. Also, at the same time, there was a very small, dedicated team of lawyers who, though one of the lawyers got legal aid, money paid to them at the expense of the taxpayer, the other two who were supporting my family and coordinating the entire response were doing that purely out of the goodness of their hearts pro bono work for the public good and had they not done that then the the outcome for me could have been very different as it oftentimes is for so many people Um, so I just wanted to kind of emphasize that point that even though in the UK we have legal aid it's been cut to such an extent that it's now only attracting certain types of people within the legal profession who mostly need the need the experience rather than doing it for a more profound kind of public accountability purpose
1: Right. Right. I, yeah, I didn't know that, that context. Um, and that seems, that seems really important to note, um, that this is, yeah, we're already in a different time now, um, than 2008, right. Quite different. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I want to, I want to ask you a bit now, I think about the, the process of of writing this book of sort of putting down this account, um, it was a sort of multi year process, right? Um, tell me a little bit about that.
0: Uh, yeah, so most people, uh, writer friends of mine, I write this in the book, uh, always explain to me that the process of writing would be quite healing and therapeutic. Actually, I found the complete opposite to be true. I found it to be a really triggering, really damaging, and really difficult uh, process to kind of put down on paper in black and white what had happened why it happened, and the effects that it had on me. And the more I did this, the more triggering and more traumatized I felt, because in that moment, I was no longer in my writing space, I was back in that prison cell, or that detention room at an airport, or at that uh, police checkpoint where I was being stopped and searched, for example. So the entire process became really cumbersome, and really difficult to actually engage in. But also at the same time, It was triggering these fears that I was being surveilled and watched by the security and intelligence services. I felt that my laptop was compromised. I felt like my smartphone was being uh, used to monitor my movements and listen to my conversations, who I was hanging out with and so on and so forth. So it became this really really difficult and damaging uh, journey which is one of the reasons why it took me four years to actually get the content down in black and white and to write this book because i had to deal with not only the difficulty of writing but also the kind of re-triggering that that particular writing uh, was creating or inducing in me the trauma that was kind of recreated every time i would write and that led to serious things like physical pains that i would feel in my body and the moment I would stop writing, they would diminish, they would lessen and then reappear acutely when I would begin rewriting again, which is when I realized ah, actually something is happening here. There, there's something connected between what I'm, what is happening in my mind and how my body is reacting to that. And when I started engaging with books that talk about psychological uh, trauma, that's driven by abuse or political violence, such as torture, for example, or kidnapping or or being held hostage, um, I quickly realized that actually this was a very natural outcome to um, the experience of being traumatized. And then when I started to understand that particular uh, discourse, I realized the importance and value of also integrating that into the actual book, in order to explain to the reader that, look, you can be entirely innocent, you can be completely unfairly targeted by the state, and try and go about your life as normally as possible. But the way that the brain is wired, it will cause you to feel certain things mentally and physically as well, and that you have no control over that. And that the only way that you can gain control over that is to understand what it is that you've been through in order to get some kind of therapy. So that's the, that's the kind of one of the after effects, the harrowing after effects of understanding everything and trying to write about it. And also something that kind of caused the book to be, to kind of have this paradox uh, at play, which was, you know, my freedom depends on writing this, but also writing this is imprisoning me into that kind of, Um, That tyranny. Um, So it was this constant fight or flight mode that was triggered in my mind. Do I just kind of run away from all of this and bury this, or do I actually confront this head on and fight it? So during the entire process of writing, there are things that weren't included that now, with hindsight and reflection, should have been included because at the time I didn't know how loud to scream about all of those things or whether I should run away. So it'll be interesting to see how the readers. Um, respond to that kind of fight or flight um, kind of meta narrative that's woven into uh, the text.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, you speak really well about the sort of consequences, and I think you know the stakes of talking about this trauma um, that you experienced. I mean, it was. It's not. It wasn't just the sort of. Uh, six, sorry, seven days and six nights in detention, you know, during which time you're being interrogated, uh, which is distressing enough, also the subsequent events. And then yeah, the process of writing itself. Um, A lot, a lot that you discuss in here, which is absolutely fascinating. But it was also, you know, also your the response you got from um the mental health services when you did seek help, you know, which as, as advised, you know, good to do. But then um in 2013, when you sought help, you wrote that at no point was it sort of mentioned or, you know, acknowledged or that, you, that this might have something to do with all of your experiences at the hands of the state. Right. Or any of them. Um, I wonder I wonder if you could talk about a little bit about that and then the stakes there.
0: Yeah. So, so, in, so I was very reluctant to draw upon the support of mental health provision in the NHS, which, of course, as British citizens, we're all entitled to free of charge. And the the reason why I was so reluctant was because at that time, because I understood counterinsurgency and how counterinsurgency relies upon all instruments of state power, including civil society and health services, to basically partake in counterterrorism activity, report people who are considered to be potential future terrorists, I was very reluctant to engage with the NHS mental health provision. However, it was only once my lawyer and my family got involved after my condition worsened to such a great extent, as I detail and document in the book, that I had to go to the hospital. But during the entire process of engaging with psychologists and psychiatrists, actually never was my experience of state violence and counterterrorism and the surveillance which I had evidence to prove was happening ever mentioned. So at that, at that particular moment in time, I was thinking, why is this part of my experience being erased? I mean, I was too scared at the time to mention it myself because I thought that the, the doctors were spies and that they were going to hand over intelligence to the authorities who may weaponize and use it against me. But on reflection, and as time has passed, I now come to understand and realize, actually, they never mentioned the, uh, the, the, the exercise of state violence as possibly triggering that particular trauma or the mental health breakdowns that I was experiencing or the psychiatric illnesses that I was going through. All they did was rather than engaging in some kind of therapy, is that they prescribed me medication uh, in the form of antipsychotic pills. So antipsychotic pills become a shortcut and they serve as a kind of a, a panacea to all problems that actually need to be addressed through forms of complex uh, trauma therapy. Um, But rather than focusing energy and resources on that, again, because of central government cuts to the health service, including and starting with mental health, mental health was unable to provide that form of support that I so badly needed. And therefore, medication became the only kind of cure to what I was going through. Again, in 2018, I was very, very reluctant, despite the kind of mental or psychiatric problems I was going through to engage. And it was only because of my uh, social networks, and the kind of cultural capital that I developed over the years, was I able to get the help needed, in order to just take a break from the writing and all the thinking in order to recover uh, and without that, I would not have been able to find the level of sanity that I have today, the the, the kind of rational control that I have today. So, again, it just shows you how important that kind of um, support structure is. And I'm very fortunate that I have that support structure, the family, the friends and the networks. So what happens if you don't? How is the NHS actually addressing these problems for people who don't have family and friends who will intervene on their behalf and take them to the doctors and psychiatrists? So we find that through these central government cuts to mental health provision, uh, not only are people's experiences of state violence not being addressed, but actually, the NHS also has an inability in, in to actually factor in the role that racialized state violence plays in the treatment of its people and how that treatment requires very specialist forms of um, uh, therapy. And until we focus and until we allocate resources to that particular form of racialized state violence, we're going to continue to have this mental health epidemic is being driven by mental health uh, sorry by state violence and the ill health of minority communities
1: right so there's clear connections to broader conversations about a racialized trauma um yeah and and how well or, or not that's handled um there's also you know there's also a change between 2013 and 2018 you write about in the book where uh, you write, by 2018, with the prevent duty placed into law by the Counterterrorism and Security Act 2015, there was no more hiding or second guessing if I could be referred to the authorities. Um, the doctor was now under a legal duty to refer people to the authorities if they were deemed a risk to themselves or society on the grounds of terrorism or future terrorism. Um, and given your previous experience, that seems like a rational fear. Um, on your part um, because so could you tell us a little bit about prevent and how that intersect what what is prevent and how does that intersect with with the these questions of healthcare and trauma
0: okay so so prevent is uh, what's globally known as countering violent extremism and prevent is the name given to the uk policy and the uk along with the netherlands were one of the two of the first countries to create a policy that essentially seeks to address the drivers of political violence. So it says that the best form of counter-terrorism or counter-extremism is to stop violence happening before it happens, right? Um, So the PREVENT policy was introduced as a way to say, look, hello civil society, hello public sector, you are now responsible for sharing information on people that you think could go on to commit violence in the future. And here are a list of 22 indicators that have been created by two government approved um, uh, practitioners um, to say that these are the things that, that show an individual has the risk or the potential to become a terrorist, right? A secret study. And All public sector workers, doctors, nurses, mental health workers, teachers, lecturers, uh, opticians, all local government members have to report people from 2015 to the authorities who they consider to be future terrorists. Now, in 2013, when I was taken to the health service uh, in order to address my problems that I was going through, my mental health breakdown, it wasn't a legal duty. I knew this because I was researching the topic, and there was never any certainty that would the doctors actually hand over the data. But in 2018, it had already become a law four years earlier, so there was no ambiguity any further as to whether I would be referred to the authorities if they felt not only that I was going to become a terrorist, but whether I was vulnerable right? Not in control of my rational faculties to such an extent that I could be indoctrinated or manipulated into engaging in political violence. So as a result of, of having that particular knowledge, the state was able to create and induce this fear that I had never experienced before. So rather than becoming a space of safety and sanctuary, the health service actually became An extension of the security state. And it became a space of danger and risk to me and my liberty. So rather than engaging with it and trying to get the support that I so desperately needed from doctors and clinicians, I was unable to do that. So prevent, which is constructed by the government as well as its advocates, is about safeguarding people, about making people safer from political violence or becoming engaged in political violence is actually having a really detrimental and damaging effect on ordinary people from accessing things like healthcare or going to school and engaging in kind of open conversation about issues um, that are deeply um, uh, contemporary whether it's about eco-activism, whether it's about political engagement, whether it's about Palestine, whether it's about any of these topics, for example, students and their parents especially are actually quite afraid that anything their children say in the safety of their school will actually quickly be referred to the authorities. So this policy, which is about safety and safeguarding allegedly has actually become one of the main avenues through which the state now polices and disciplines communities and ordinary people
1: right and of course in very much still racialized ways right it's it's yeah who is targeted or or construed as a a, a possible risk
0: yes yeah, so, uh, yeah again it's always going to be i mean of course the prevent policy does not discriminate and the prevent practitioners who are responsible for rolling this out in their training to public sector workers like teachers always say that look terrorists come in all different shapes sizes and most importantly colors and that you cannot all just make the assumption that just because somebody is brown or bearded or wears a headscarf as a woman is going to be more risky than a white young woman right so that's what that's what the theory says but the practice is always very different because The threat of political violence and terrorism has been racialized. And most people who you can be any color and be a Muslim, you can be white and be a Muslim. But inherently, because um, the policy, uh, the, 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 the Muslim community in the UK is racialized, it's either South Asian brown or black you oftentimes find that counterterrorism takes a very highly racialized application and implementation. So you'll find that it's brown men and women and black men and women who are being referred most oftenly because they are the ones that are associated with acts of terrorism. So even though the threat is considered to be across the board, it's only certain racialized communities who are targeted. Also, at the same time, the sorts of indicators that are used to assess who is a future terrorist amongst white communities are so, is based on a discourse that is so normalized and repeated by politicians and the Prime Minister and other influential figures within British and European society, that a young person in a school or a college, for example, expressing those views are not going to lead to some kind of alarm bell sounding because that discourse is so normalised. So again, you find that because of the way that the prevent strategy is constructed and the discourse within which it exists, the discursive practices within which it exists, are not going to lead to the same form of violence being exercised against uh, white communities as they are against racialized communities.
1: Right? Yeah, I think that's a yeah, that's a really important point. Um... Yeah, I've also yeah I've undergone prevent trading um, and it seems of course yeah <laughs> it seems it seems very you know it's not, you know nothing uh, against the people delivering it it seems very reasonable that doesn't in, in when you're undergoing the training um, and every effort is made to make it neutral that doesn't mean it is that way in practice and we can see that in the numbers in you know and in who who is uh, sort of reported targeted.
0: And even you know, Kat, just just to pick up on this point as well, because people will say actually there's now more referrals being made uh, um, uh, relative to the size of the population against white people. But what we what we oftentimes find is that it's not all white people that are being targeted. So there's also a class dimension here. It's those white working-class communities who can't express their racism and Islamophobia in the sophisticated, coded, and and, and savvy ways that the prime minister perhaps can, or those um, affluent uh, members of our societies who are able to express their racism and Islamophobia through cultural tropes and stereotypes. By using the P word or the N word or saying that all Muslims and Jews need to die is, of course, going to lead to immediate kind of um uh, intervention by the state but actually that's only a very small minority of people who are not able to code their racism that are going to be targeted so again what we find is that intersectional class dimension at play where only the white working classes will be targeted by prevent rather than the more affluent racists and islamophobes
1: right that's yeah. That's a really important point. Thank you for bringing bringing class uh, yeah into this too. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think I'd what I'd really like to to know is I mean because the book here is so wide ranging. Um, I mean in terms of like it's it's theoretical. I would say in terms of its theoretical um, influences and the literature it draws on, as well as you know talking so much about your your sort of personal experience, which is really important. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what your influences were, maybe some ideas for further reading, other than, of course, your book, um, for our listeners.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I tried purposefully to keep the book as free of theory and as jargon uh, as possible. Uh, and the reason is because it was written with a view for it to be read by people who are non-specialists, who are lay people just interested in the subject area. But I cannot deny my academic training as a social scientist. Um, so there, there is this kind of um, integration of theory. And I think the two theories that are kind of driving my, my, uh, the, the lens through which I view counterterrorism is Foucault uh, and his work on governmentality and disciplinary power and Antonio Gramsci's work on hegemony. So what, what, the way that Foucault becomes relevant is through his theory of the panopticon, for example, and how power has this ability to shape and mould people based on this kind of underlying threat that violence is not far away from being exercised against you and how that is internalised by the subject to lead to this form of self-policing and self-disciplining. So in those particular... Um, uh, chapters where I talk about how there was this constant fear that was kind of overriding my rational faculties and my ability to distinguish between fact and fiction and reality and, 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 and fiction. It was this internalization of power and the way that power makes us believe certain things, how it molds and shapes us. So I'd say that was one of the one of the most important theoretical, Uh, kind of text that informed my writing but also at the same time Antonio Gramsci's work on hegemony how power has an ability to construct through discourse something as so natural and so commonsensical that we don't even question it we don't even see it so for example when I'm arrested and taken into custody and investigated and then released without charge it doesn't cause a mass protest amongst the general population. Yeah, the people who I know or the people at my university and other academics can see the problems uh, and difficulties with arresting a young Muslim student. So part of the reason of writing the book is to actually challenge those commonsensical assumptions that the state always acts in a fair and proportionate way and only uses violence against those people who are considered to be deserving victims. Actually, The entire book becomes an exercise of counter hegemonic resistance. The entire writing of the story, in order to make visible how state power works, how it coerces, and how it kind of operates, is a way of making visible something. And making something visible is the first step to creating a situation to make people question and doubt um, that actually power is not um, or should not be embedded and not questioned in this way because it causes these effects that we take for granted because they are hegemonic. So the entire book is framed by this kind of Gramscian commitment to making the invisible visible by using my particular story and survival as a case study uh, for people to understand and read. So I think those are the two key theoretical texts that kind of shape the book and the way that I've written it,
1: right? Great. Um, yeah, and I mean, you talk as well as the book being this sort of form of resistance in and of itself. Um, you talk a little bit towards the end of the book, or quite a bit actually, um, about sort of other possible avenues for resistance or change. Um, could you tell tell me a little bit about those? <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, so so the, the fi- kind of final few chapters of the book are focused on kind of helping the reader think through uh, some methods of resistance, because the entire book kind of makes a case for how overpowering and how overbearing the state security apparatus is. But actually, despite the almost godlike presence that the security and intelligence agencies and the military want to assign themselves there is still space and scope for resistance because ultimately, in democratic societies, the state craves consent. So it has an ability to force their way and compel and coerce people into changing their behavior. But that particular change in behavior will never be from, so to speak, the heart. And that is ultimately what the government desire. They 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 are happy with your compliance, but they need your consent in order to legitimise the political system within which that government operates. And it's that need for consent that creates the first avenue, the first space in which some kind of resistance can be offered. So, for example, in the book I make the case that, look, if you don't consent and you comply, you're showing the public and the state that you, they can make you through the barrel of a gun or the bar- or a baton to change your behavior. But the only reason you're changing your behavior is because you are afraid. So fear becomes visible. It becomes undeniable almost. And it, that can only happen as if you withdraw your consent and not give your consent. So every time that I would stop by the police, for example, I would tell them that I don't consent to this stop. I do not agree with this stop. I do not agree with your exercise of power. But actually, I'm going to comply because I know that you have the power right now. And what that does is it it kind of emphasizes that asymmetry in power between who has the power and who doesn't. And by emphasizing that, we can always show that actually, we may go along with what you say, but we don't agree with it. And the state want us to actually agree with it. They want us to consent. And by not consenting, we can make visible that the state and its political system relies upon coercion and fear of its uh, of its activities and its presence rather than our agreement. So that's one way, for example, that we can, we can use, so to speak, to resist um, state violence and the way it operates. Also, there was another chapter in the book that's dedicated to sharing our stories and how state violence affects us in a very real, uh, lived way. And the reason for that is not only to gain a sense of solidarity and to share our suffering and, and our struggles with other communities of struggle, but also to start making those stories central to our efforts to resist Structural violence, structural racism, structural Islamophobia, because all of these things are hegemonic. They are invisible, the way they operate, the way they subject us to violence and coercion and control. And by making visible those stories and how those structures of power damages and harm us, we can show that actually we may not think about the effects of these structures, but actually this is the outcome. So not only do we gain that sense of solidarity and kind of encourage and inspire others to kind of resist with us and stand in solidarity, but we can actually make visible how power works and the effects that it has on us in order to disrupt and hopefully dismantle that particular power and the institutions within which it is exercised.
1: Right. These conversations are incredibly important to have. Yeah. Um, On that note, uh, I'm wondering what you're working on next or now that the book is out.
0: Yeah, so at the moment, I'm uh, trying to um, make the findings of the book accessible, uh, whether it's through engaging with policymakers and other academics and communities. uh, But also, I think my next project is going to focus on something to do with the effects of counterterrorism state violence uh, on individuals and communities. Because I think we've had 20 years of mapping and documenting critically, you know, the way that this policy operates. But oftentimes, and I kind of only came to fully understand this when I was writing the chapters on trauma in the book, is what is the effect of this state violence on communities? And I'm not just talking about people who are subjected to the hard end uh, hard edged interventions by the state arrest and detention or imprisonment and targeted t- assassination but actually everyday counterterrorism you know, the prevent referral, the conversation in a classroom, the stop at a border, the stop and search at a roadside. What are the kind of psychological, psychiatric impacts and effects? How does this exercise of power discipline communities and make them self-discipline and self-police themselves? So for me, the next big project that I'm interested in in researching is mapping the effects of state power on Uh, communities in order to come up with new strategies of resistance and hopefully agitating for change
1: right great um i think that's that's a great place for us to end uh it's been wonderful talking with you today uh about your vital work uh rizwan thank you for coming on the show and thank you everyone else for tuning in Uh, Once again, my name is Katriota Gold, and I've been speaking with Rizwan Sabir about his brand new book, The Suspect, Counterterrorism, Islam, and the Security State, which was published with Pluto Press in March 2022. I highly recommend picking up a copy from your local bookstore, direct from the press or from any other ethical retailer, or if those are beyond your means, requesting a copy from your local or university library. Thanks for listening and thanks again, Rizwan, for joining me today.
0: Thank you, Kat.